Hello and welcome to Self-Taught Devs. If this is your first time joining us, this is a show where two self-taught developers discuss the learning and growth experience for folks just getting into the industry. My name is Eric Winklespecht. And I'm Matt Ehrlich. And if you're a listener to the show, uh, you know that we often like to have guests on with us. But today we have a very different kind of guest, so we're going to be doing something a little bit different than our standard. But we still would like to welcome Brian Pulliam. Brian, how are you? Good, how are you? Doing awesome. So, Brian, we want to give you a minute here to kind of go through a little bit of your background, who you are, what you do, and then we can get into the stuff we want to talk about today. Yeah, great. So I've been in tech for about 26 years at this point. Uh, I feel a thousand years old, but uh, mainly in three different disciplines. I would say TPM, engineering and engineering manager, and the companies I think most people would recognize in the last Ooh, 10 to 11 years have been Microsoft, uh, Zillow, and Coinbase. But to be candid, uh, none of those roles were the most fulfilling thing I've ever done. Uh, as it turns out, the most fulfilling thing I ever did was be a volunteer volleyball coach with my wife for about 13 years. And what strikes me, what terrified me about the scenario, Eric, was uh, I didn't want to go. Like, I literally did not want to go to the first day of volleyball practice. My wife had taken this job. And I was like, this is dumb. Why would I ever want to do this? And then after probably one season, it became the thing I wanted to do for the rest of my career. And I just remember thinking, wow, like I really suck at identifying what's going to make me fulfilled. And that kind of freaked me out a little bit, to be honest. Uh, like, why am I so bad at this? But it turns out I just love helping other people succeed, but only those people who are excited and committed to their goals. Like, I, you know, I've told, told, had people tell me I should be a teacher, but man, like half those people don't want to be there. They want to be smoking weed in the parking lot. Like they, they're not even paying attention. Like why would I throw my passion and my energy into something that people, that people aren't listening? Right. And so when my kids got older, I, we, my wife and I had to give up the coaching, but that deep coaching expertise just became this immense advantage when I became a manager. And so now I kind of wonder to empower these 14 years of coaching and 26 years in tech to just help people achieve their career goals in a way that my managers never could. So while I'm not a self-taught dev, I am definitely a self-taught leader. And uh, there's a lot uh, I've learned over two and a half decades in tech uh, that I think can help self-taught devs understand how to hit the ground running, how to get their interviews, and just things to watch out for uh, in terms of pitfalls to avoid when you when you start in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Brian. That's awesome. And you know, the whole reason that Matt and I started this podcast was really another avenue for us to try to give back to the community, to try to help folks who are on similar paths to, to ourselves and try to provide as much value and insight as we can, um, no matter where they are on their journey. So we're definitely interested in hearing some of the things you have to say. Uh, Matt, I know we have a list of questions here, but I want to give you the opportunity to kind of roll us into it or, or give any comments you want up front. Yeah. So actually, I was wondering, like, what are some things that you find might be lacking? It doesn't have to be specifically from self-taught devs, uh, but just early career starters. I, th I think a lot of us kind of get the same advice or maybe we're taking the same course or watching the same videos. But what are some things that you've noticed throughout, I guess, a bunch of different people that are just lacking? Yeah. You know, I think this is probably true for anybody who goes from uh, not working on a team to working on a team. So, you know, I don't think it's just self-taught devs. I think this is actually true for college hires as well. But going from succeeding as an individual to succeeding as a group is, is really different, you know, and there's a lot of skills that you need to work as a team, uh, that maybe you didn't need when you were an individual. You didn't have to worry about 
collaboration or conflict resolution or complexity cost or making the right trade-off. Uh, a lot of these themes of issues come up when you start to work on much more complex projects that you could never really attempt on your own, either as homework in a university or as a self-taught dev. Like the complexity there is just, it's, it's mind boggling for people who haven't made the pivot yet, regardless of whether you're self-taught or not. Like the, the example I use often with people is like, oh, you know, they'll come to me and they'll say, I have a more efficient way to do this. And you're like, okay, well, that's great. But uh, is it backwards compatible? Like is security going to approve it? Like, is it going to bork the data dog budget? Does it fly with the 10 other teams that use this platform as a client? Like, it, are you going to automatically force a library upgrade with the CICD system? So all these dependencies um, are going to get updated unexpectedly. Like, are you going to wedge another team and now they're stuck? They can't use the new version and they can't use the old version. I think there's just a lot of trade-offs that, that you don't know about, right? Because you haven't been in that environment before where you have to make sure it's not just about you. Like there's this concept as a self-taught dev that I would call like local maxima, right? You know, I'm trying to make this thing work, but it doesn't have to work in a grander scheme of things. And so oftentimes working as a professional engineer, especially on a larger team, or even with 50 other teams at a company, it's about global maxima, right? So you're intentionally going to choose the non-ideal solution from an efficiency perspective because it's not that simple anymore, right? There's just a lot more trade-offs to be made. You throw a lot of terms in that uh, yeah. that conversation there, right? And I, I think for a lot of folks out there, including myself, like, man, that sounds kind of overwhelming. It does. Where, you know, I have worked in plenty of team environments. I have had to consider the grand, you know, the, the grand operation of a company, right? And, and including the individual parts and individual um, teams and departments. And when making changes, like, how does a change that we would make in inside sales affect accounting, affect the warehouse, affect, you know, whoever else purchasing? And those things, they really do matter. But I want to hear a little bit more from you about this. And like, what does that mean for folks who are going the self-taught route and like trying to get into that first role then and having that perspective shift of like, OK, I've got my own projects that I've been working on and I understand that I can do these things and I have these skills that sounds like a challenging thing to just jump right into now and be like, okay, now I got to be ready for all this stuff too, right? Like, what is the expectation for somebody just getting into their first role? Are they going to have to deal with, you know, the amount of stuff that you're saying all at once? They're going to have some people they can rely on, right? Like, oh, of what, course. Is, what is the, what is the expectation of kind of easing into this? Yeah. I would say the biggest, uh, after talking with a number of self-taught devs, I, some of the smartest engineers I know, I'd say in the top five smartest engineers, I know three of the top five are self-taught. A lot of that has to do with their passion and their interest uh, in the role. But once you're on a team and you have other people around you that want you to succeed, especially if they're more senior than you, you know, I'm, I will make an assumption that a self-taught dev for the moment is coming in sort of more at a, like an early level career, right? They're not coming in directly into like a senior or a staff role. And if that's the case, you, you learn pretty quickly that engineering, software engineering is an apprentice craft and having people around you that have uh, are farther down the road than you are in your career is a gigantic advantage because all of this work you've spent trying and failing and trying and failing and stumbling, suddenly you have people around you that can help you avoid pitfalls. You don't have to fall in every, <laughs> into every single one. And most senior engineers don't want you to make the same mistakes they did, right? They, they're here to help you be successful, not just because it's expected of them, 
you know, every senior engineer on a team is expected to lift the people around them, like make other people around them more productive. But they also sincerely want for, for their colleagues to not struggle the way they did. And so I think a lot of people are highly collaborative and we're very helpful. They just want to know that you've done some work, you know, to try and solve a problem yourself before you reach out. You know, you don't, you don't bail after five minutes of, of something not working uh, and distract them. So as long as you're respectful, I think people are happy to help. You know, in terms of what you need to know when you start out in a role, working on a team, I think being able to demonstrate that you play well with others, right, is really important. You know, being by yourself and being able to write code well, but not be able to collaborate well with others is probably a, a risk or a worry that a hiring manager might have in an interview. Like, hey, everything I've seen Eric do for six years uh, is great, and I can look at his GitHub profile, and that's great, uh, but can he resolve a conflict with another uh, developer and have a conversation and come out of it where people um, don't have hurt feelings and we can find like find a happy medium because that's hard to do. You will always at a bigger company when you're working on a team be working with people that disagree with you and it's encouraged, right? Because that's how we find the best solution for a, a given set of problems. So playing well with others, I think, is something you need to focus on. And, and I say that to mean you can collaborate effectively and you can resolve conflicts between other humans. I think another thing that it's important to understand is you're coming into a new environment and you have some skills, but there are some skills you have probably in more depth in, in terms of engineering than maybe someone who went the university route because you have more applied coding that you've been writing and being self-taught, but there's still a lot to learn. There just is. And a process is one of those things, right? You know, at, at a big company where there's 500 or 5,000 developers, you have to, the process of even just checking in code and how you get it reviewed in PRs and the rings of validation it might go through and shared test environments and build and deploy systems, like all of these things might be new because you've never had to resolve a merge conflict with someone else if you're a self-taught dev, right? And so these are new things and it's important that you come into this a new job with an open mind and understanding that you will need to build new skills to be successful in this environment because it's not just about coding. In fact, some of the most impactful things my engineers have done has been convince someone else that we shouldn't write code, hmm. right? When would you do that as a self-taught dev, right? Like I have a quick story about this. Uh, when I was in game development, like an art director came to me running down the hallway. Oh my God, we need to re-render all the art. Back in the day, re-rendering the art was probably three months. It would be going to add three months to the end of our timeline. Like while, while engineers are doing nothing, we're just going to have a server farm re-render this art. Probably $150,000 in cost. Uh, and this was back in the 90s. And I remember looking at the art director going, okay, this person just came to me with a solution, right? That's not a problem. That's a solution. So I remember having to say to, let's call him Steve, What's, what problem are you trying to solve? And he said, the art looks like crap. And I said, okay, show me. So we walk back to his desk. He shows me the art that he thinks looks terrible. And I said, oh, yeah, you're right. That art does look terrible, but that's not, you don't need to re-render the art in order to make that look better. Like we use palletized art in this game because this is a long time ago. Let me show you a section of the game where the art is final because all we did was just pick the final palette, which for an artist takes maybe like an hour to do. And he said, oh, this looks great. So do we need to re-render that stuff? I was like, no, like that art will look beautiful in like two weeks. And all it's going to take is like one hour of an artist that rep 
reports to you to go do this work. And he's like, oh, phew, thanks, bye. And then he leaves to go to a meeting, right? <laughs> so um, if you're a self-taught dev, uh, you may not have been in a scenario like that where you see your currency as the volume of code you can write or that, uh, the, how elegant the code is or how long it lasts. But sometimes, But code is a means to an end, right? At a big company, code is the means to creating business impact. But if you can find another way to get that business impact and it requires writing zero code, those are the things that can get you promoted, right? Because you you have this capability to understand the bigger picture. It's not just it's your GitHub profile like uh, look like a green grid mm-hmm. and you're you know you're submitting things every day. That's good to build practice, but can you convince leadership to not prioritize a project that would be a hot mess if we tried to deploy it and waste like six months of work of a team of five people? Like those conversations are a lot more valuable than writing code at some point in your career. So there's a human element to this that's really hard to, to reproduce as a self-taught dev. It seems like the more people I, I talk to with more experience, the more I learn how important uh, the soft skills are and being able to collaborate with others. Is there anything that you would recommend for somebody who necessarily like doesn't have that experience? Do you think there might be a way to sort of emulate that team environment while we're learning um, either on our own or maybe we're part of like a small group on LinkedIn or some other platform. Yeah, there, you know, uh, I had a feeling this question might come up. I actually asked 10 senior developers before this uh, podcast to answer this very question. And so I gathered some data and came back and the consensus was there's no perfect answer to this question because the way people do things at different companies varies quite a bit. And so it is not usually the thing that holds people back. The idea of uh, emulating the team environment, there are a lot of things you can learn about when it comes to, do you want that experience as early as possible? You can look at open source projects. That's definitely something to do, right? Anytime you have multiple developers, especially if they don't, if they're not on the same team working together every single day, try to put yourself in scenarios where, you are going to have to deal with these problems, especially where deadlines aren't as important, right? Open source project probably doesn't have some PR, you know, that went around to like a thousand <laughs> TV stations and newspapers saying this feature will be live on Friday. You're more likely to have a little more flexibility in your timeline. So introduce yourself to scenarios that are likely to, to mimic what you expect to find there and or nonprofit work is another one gig work for larger projects. Those are probably the three best things you can do. Beyond that, it's about understanding some topics that are likely to come up. Uh, I would say mm, the five things I would would look into is what is the tooling that you're likely to use? You know, you may not know the the work item management system you're going to use at the company you haven't joined yet, but you can learn about Jira, right? And you can learn about Asana. And, and maybe you can learn about Trello and just kind of see how a Kanban board works. You may not even have one of those because if it's just you, like a spreadsheet works fine. You don't need to know who's doing what. You're the only who that's there. But understanding how pair programming works and why it's valuable, looking for videos of examples of how retros are done or how planning is done or how bug triage is done. All of these things where multiple engineers come together to have discussions, these are all valuable things. Uh, I do think it's important you understand that you and your team are all in the same boat. There's a tendency to say, well, I'm doing my job, like as an early developer, 
and then we miss a deadline. And you're like, okay, well, you're in the same boat that's sinking with everybody else. Like if you miss that deadline or the release doesn't go well, there's no such thing as I succeeded even though my team has failed. And so going out of your way to help other people when you have spare time is is pretty important too. I think um, there's awesome value in that research and finding information just about some of those things you talked about, right? Like how to utilize Jira and how to utilize Kanban in general. But I also know that we have you know a number of folks who are career changers, right? So there's not necessarily like no background in working in a team environment, right? But it's definitely a different kind of team environment that I think most people are uh, accustomed to. How, you know, in your experience working with, with devs trying to, you know, get their, get their way into the industry, how do you help folks make that connection between what their experience is and then what new experience they're going into? Yeah. I've helped a few people from outside of tech land jobs in tech and first and foremost for the interview process, it's helping them understand the dialect. Cause you know, we have terms that don't exist in dictionaries that we use all the times, right? We talk about uh, feature control keys and we talk about OKRs and we talk about pairing and all, all these things. We talk about scaling and getting wedged. So the first thing I do with my clients is sit them down and, and figure out what do they call the thing that we call this so that I can help create uh, a dictionary. A simple, you know, insurance to tech dictionary conversion. Cause a lot of times they have transferable skills. They just know those, those processes or those items by a different name. They do planning, but to talk about something that's below the cut line with someone in insurance, they may not know what that means. They're like, Oh, well, th- what we mean when we say that is we want to invest in this, but we've prioritized this work and we know we have this much capacity. So this is our cut line. But we want to talk about the things we're not doing with leadership because leadership might have some input and say, hey, I would rather you do one of those things below the cut line and reprioritize it, bring it above the cut line. So by arming these people with the right terms to use in their interviews, they can uh, have better conversations with people. I think that would be one thing. Secondly, have coffee chats with people. There's a lot of engineers out there that are willing to meet with you for 15 minutes And you can learn what Amazon uses for a lot of these team environments just out of a 15 minute coffee chat. What do you guys use for build? You know, how do you guys handle, uh, where do you do bug tracking? How do you do planning? And you'll start to see a center of gravity with the the types of tools that people are suggesting. If you're going to join a big company, it's often they'll be standardized anyway. So if one team's using Jira and you have more than 500 developers at the company, probably everybody's using Jira. And knowing how to use it, it's like knowing language one, right? You know, you can program in another language. It'll be a little bit of an adjustment period. But as long as you have those fundamentals in place and you understand what the intent of tracking that work is, that will help quite a bit. What are some things that um, maybe you work with somebody on? Like, the, let's just say somebody's applying for their first job um, and they're, they're trying to get their first position and then they you know, they come to you and what are some things that you notice maybe about their resume or, or how they're applying for jobs or um, maybe the skills that they're learning that that you help them um, improve on? From a resume perspective, I really favor those people who can show both what and how in their bullet points in their job entry. So it is great to say that you built a thing, but you never want your resume to come across as, look at me, I'm busy. <laughs> Like I wrote a lot of code because it's not, it comes back to that point we discussed earlier, you know, code is a means to business impact. So 
what I look for is someone who can say, who leads with business impact on a bullet point in their resume for a job entry or like on their LinkedIn profile and then says like via or by, you know, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, my, my team at Coinbase in 2021 wrote a lot of code. I mean, I could say that that's not very meaningful <laughs> for people to understand. Everybody writes a lot of code. How, how is your team different? But if I say, Hey, I was an engineering manager for an engagement team in a growth org. We ran a set of experiments those 12 calendar months. And those experiments resulted in $125 million of extra revenue on a team of six developers. That's impactful, right? Like people want to talk to you when you say, wait, your team delivered $20 million of incremental revenue per engineer. Like they want to talk to you because they, they, because that's the impact. And then they can talk about how did we do that? Well, we wrote these features. We rolled out these experiments. We watched our metrics. We saw which ones were being successful. You know, we turned up traffic on these things, but you got to, you know, that resume and that LinkedIn profile is almost 75% for the recruiter and about 25% for the hiring manager or for the, the technical people you'll meet. Cause if you never make it past the recruiter, it doesn't matter if Matt's going to fall in love with your resume if he never gets to see it. Right. So the, there is this gatekeeping functionality where you can always add more in a verbal conversation in an interview, right? If I'm on an interview with Matt and Matt asks me about my projects, I can dive into something not in my resume. But if you never get to Matt in the first place, then you're not really succeeding, right? You gotta, you gotta make sure that in 60 seconds to two minutes that the, re the recruiter can scan your resume and say, okay, this guy's good enough. This gal's good enough. I want to make sure they get in, in front of somebody who can evaluate their competence because a recruiter can't really do that. It definitely isn't the first time I've heard the recommendation of like lead with your, your metrics or your KPIs and that you've improved like that kind of like hard factual evidence of, of work you've put in. I would like to use myself as an example here. Great. My previous career, my company, had some metrics and KPIs that they would keep. But when it came to things that I personally did that were extremely impactful, the only way I was able to go through and evaluate some of my impact was through like polling processes and getting a little more anecdotal feedback, right? And I think you're gonna find that sometimes like people working in various companies like have the same kind of problem where they're like, I did something that I felt was very impactful. I did something that was meaningful to the folks that I worked with, or maybe not, right? Maybe they don't have something where they made this big project that had a, a very large impact. Maybe they don't have any real way that they can find some sort of like, here's a thing I did, here's a number that I can put to my my uh, accomplishment. What do you do in those situations, right? Like, how do you try to navigate somebody's previous career and pull those things out where maybe they don't necessarily know that they exist or they weren't solidified by the company, right? What kind of work do we do then to, to find that, to find that information? Yeah, I have a, I have a client right now who has worked as a consultant and as a consultant and doing some, uh, some gig work, he often doesn't understand the impact of the, what the project's trying to accomplish because they, it's not shared with him, right? Like he does this work and they say, your job here is to execute you're not here because we, because we, you're a part of our three year long term vision to, you know, to make this platform a reality or, you know, or to grow with new customers. They bring him on for staff augmentation and they say, you're going to do this work. Now go do it. And this is how you get evaluated. And this came up. He said, 
I don't know what the, why we're doing the work we're doing. And I said, okay, so from here on out, thou shalt put this on a stone tablet. Thou shalt never do another project in your career without knowing why it's important. Ask the question. You can't go back and, and, uh, we don't have a time machine, but you can ask the people you worked with. You can reach out to them on LinkedIn and say, Hey, Sally, Hey, Steve, you were the PM for this project. I'm really, I'm really proud of the work I did, but I'm realizing I don't have any of the impact documented for how this project turned out. Maybe you, maybe you finished before the project released. You know, you did a contract work. Reach out to those people and talk with them and find out. Somebody knows. I mean, nobody goes around investing this kind of money in software developers without having a clear understanding of what they're trying to move the needle on. So somebody knows. You can find them. And if you don't know, you should estimate. You should estimate to the best of your ability and you should be clear that it's an estimate, you know, EST, whatever you want to put on your bullet point. But it's important to have that mindset that this work only matters in as much as it moves a metric that we care about. Could be more customers, could be a better customer experience because we're fixing a bug. And the technique that I use with people is if Eric says, oh, I built this form, right? You know, I'm a front end developer or I did something in React Native. I, I say, okay, what did you do? And then the first thing they'll say is, I built some code. You know, they'll use fancier words than that, but they'll say, I built some code. And I will say, so that, and they'll say, well, so that I could deploy it. And you're like, okay, so that, well, so that it would be shipped. So that, and like, I'll just, I'll just be a pain in the butt. You know, I'll just be this broken record. And I'll say, but why did someone want you to build that? Even if it's not in the dock, that you got, you know, it's not in the spec, it's not in the ticket, it's not in the design technical design doc. I want you to think about why did someone pay you oodles of money to work on this thing for three weeks? Because it's expensive. You know, what you get paid as a software developer, the company is probably paying double or triple that in terms of having a place for you to come to the office and your benefits and all these type of things. Engineers are expensive. We don't just deploy them to keep them busy. You're, you're trying to accomplish something and being able to demonstrate that on your resume is helpful. And if you don't know, I suggest you reach out to the people that you worked with on those projects and have a discussion. And if nobody knows, have a coffee chat on Zoom and brainstorm it and come up with something you all feel like you could add to your resumes all at the same time that you feel like you would support each other. Yeah, I feel like it. this is the impact it had. For, for my client that I had that I talked with last week in a coaching session, they said they were doing agile, but they weren't. So he showed them the value of, of running agile. And that's great to say, introduce the team to agile and, and ran sprints. Like, so that what though? Oh, well, now we actually, in every retro, we sit down and talk about three or four actionable things we want to try next sprint in order to improve our process or improve our engineering velocity. Right. And that has resulted in bugs getting significantly reduced but he had not connected the dots there until we had a discussion. Well, what's the tangible benefit of, of why you do this? If your director came to you and said, why are you having retros? No other team does this. Well, we identified a bug that we realized was actually slowing us down. We fixed that bug. And now any feature we build in that code base from here on out is actually twice as fast to develop. Well, that sounds pretty cool. Like that's impact I wanna, I wanna write on my resume. Resolved a bug that doubled engineering velocity for an entire section of the code base. 
I would put that on the resume, right? That's impact. Well, uh, yeah, it's, um, I often find myself going through my own resume and instead of just listing like things that got done, um, I like the advice here where it's like, okay, but why, but why, but why? I think that's uh, really mm -hmm. important. Um, and also about um, skills. So let's say we're looking at a job posting and a lot of these postings, the list of skills is super, super long, right? Yeah. So then as a newcomer, that makes me say to myself, okay, well now I need a lot of these skills because so many of these jobs are requiring it, right? And that might lead to, okay, now I'm going to put some of these skills that I might've worked with once or twice on my resume and then it kind of inflates the skills that you're proficient with. So that I, I find that to be a, a difficult balancing act because I don't want to work with something once, build a little tiny project, and then put, okay, cool, now I'm really good with that skill and throw it on my resume. But that's what a lot of these uh, job applications are asking for. So how would you suggest someone kind of navigating that? So I will tell you, if I get a resume for a college hire, someone who's just got a degree, and they list 17 technologies on their resume. I just, just, I just mark it out. I just, there's no way you know those things. You have not worked in the industry long enough for those things to be on your resume as a hiring manager or someone interviewing them. So this inflation happens. I will tell you, most of the big tech companies do not have this chat GBT integration ATS automatically deny Matt because a number of keywords doesn't track on the resume. That doesn't really happen. That's kind of a fear that people have, and it's not usually reality. Even the Googles and and the Microsofts and the Coinbases and the Zillows, they get hundreds of applicants. I don't know a single recruiter there that says, oh, I clicked a button and got rid of three quarters of the applicants because they didn't have the keywords on their resume. So I think you, can, you don't have to put those things there because you're afraid you won't get looked at. Most, most recruiters, the reason they are working so many hours is because they're looking at so many resumes every day. They may not have a lot of time. So the important part is that you make it look impactful. So to answer your question, if I worked with something in school, I would put that in the school section. I'm not a big believer on a resume of having like a single section that says tech skills or tech stack for this very reason. Because I don't know if you used Redis 10 years ago and you've never touched it since then, or if you've been using it for the past five years, if it's all lumped in one bucket. What I do advocate for is that every job entry on your resume, the last bullet point says tech stack colon, and then has a comma separated list of the things you feel comfortable about. Because now you're adding a time component to when you use the skill. And if Matt says react on the last three jobs he's had, and those three jobs span five years, I, I don't have to write five years of experience. The, the, the recruiter or the hiring manager can figure that out, right? They can see the, the years and do the math real quick. But if he writes React in his recent job and he's been there 12 months and it's not in the prior ones, it tells me what I need to know. And also, it's an opportunity for you to demonstrate as a self-taught dev that you are learning new technologies throughout your career, even if you are self-taught. Right. You can say, oh, you know, I did school and I learned a lot about these things, learned a lot about AWS technologies. I don't know. I learned S3 and SQS and SNS, something else. But then I did a side project as a, in open source and I learned about Snowflake. And wow, isn't that cool to have a cloud based database solution? 
I really got deep into that. Like, we want to talk with you about the things that you learn because we're in this. Most people are in software development because they love solving problems and, and they love learning things or they love, you know, delivering things. Those are kind of the three main reasons. Mm. So does that, does that answer your question? I think don't overdo it, but also find a way to not lump it together because it makes it really hard for me to know. Were well, you an expert in the first thing you list or did you just kind of sort them alphabetically? And now I have no earthly idea. Like, well, what, what are your go-to things that I feel like I can ask you questions about? Because if you put it on the resume, you're right, Matt, like I might grill you and find out what, what level are you in this particular skill? If you put everything under the sun and the first five things I ask you about, you can't ask basic questions. I now am very skeptical about everything on your list. That's probably not a great idea. Yeah, that uh, that does answer uh, my question, and also, uh, you know, I think that's a great idea for uh, talking about your proficiency with the actual skill. Um, and it's something that I've actually never thought about before. Instead of because I do currently have a lump of skills that I've worked with, right? But I think that's um... shame on you, Matt. <laughs> no, everybody does this. Everybody does this. And so once I saw someone else doing this, and I interviewed them, I was like, "Wow, I love this." I did not come up with this idea. I saw someone else doing this and said, "That's brilliant." I'm going to advocate everybody to do this going forward. We've covered a lot of things, and I feel like. Throughout this conversation, we're pulling back a little bit more, right? We talked about mistakes. We talked about team environment stuff. We've talked about the resume in general. I want to pull back a little bit more, um, still kind of in the same vein, I guess, as resume stuff. And let's talk about like finding opportunities, right? Let's say we've we've adjusted our resume and we, we feel confident in what we've got. We think it's a good representation of who we are, what skills we have. We've got some metrics on there and things are looking good. There's a lot of different opinions out there about, I mean, you know, you're going the self-taught route, which means while you're on the job search, you have to be doing a lot of other things at the same time, right? You have to be continuing to learn new technologies. You have to be continuing to practice your, your DSA for, you know, your interview questions, right? I, I'd love to hear your recommendations and your thoughts on how folks should be going about that kind of stage in their journey. Because, you know, I'm communicating with a lot of people on LinkedIn who are at that phase. We're like, we're head down looking for employment trying to search the job boards with things that are, some people are take that shotgun approach, just apply to everything. Some people like myself want to apply to things that, you know, I find a little bit more meaning in and things I want to be a part of. But let's talk about strategy. What are kind of your recommendations on strategy? What should we be focusing on? What do you find folks find success with? I'm a big believer because of the story I told about, you know, hey, I've done these things in tech, but maybe early in my career, I loved like product. I was a game developer for five or six years and loved creating Game, uh, games for kids. And then I got to Microsoft and then I became a feature PM. And then I kind of loved, wow, I get to write the things that the other developers get to build. That's pretty cool. But my, my interests kind of changed over time, but I don't think I ever sat down. I think I stumbled through it. I don't think I ever sat down and said, what do I love and what am I good at? So I think the best single word phrase is probably this Japanese ikigai, right? This life purpose idea. Like what can you get paid at and what do you love doing? What do you think the world needs? Spending some time to think about what it is you really are good at is important. So like when I was an athletics coach, I would have stats. So if Matt and Eric are on my team, I have these 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 metrics, right? <laughs> on on your performance. And I would say, oh, Matt has these set of strengths. He's great at these things. He kind of sucks at this. He would be good in this position on my team, right? But, but Eric 
is also a player on the team, but he has different stats, right? So he may not play the same role on the team, but you're both on the team. And it's my job as a coach to find out what position to put you in. So when you're a self-taught dev, you are probably not getting a lot of feedback from a manager about what you're good at and what you're not good at, right? That there's no, there's no uh, circle of feedback coming back at you to help you identify where you're strong and where you may need to get better. You maybe have some idea. So doing some reflection and finding out what you're good at conceptually. Uh, what I use with all my clients is this framework called Gallup Strengths Finder. Uh, it's a 40 minute survey. Uh, getting a survey code costs like $20. It's pretty cheap to get the top five strengths. And it has worked extremely well with everybody that I have led and everybody I have coached to get a deeper understanding of what, what does Matt have an unfair advantage at compared to Eric? What is he really, really good at? His strengths are like these tools in his tool belt that he reaches for when he solves problems. And it means I can put him in positions on the team to leverage those strengths as much as humanly possible. So you need to know that about yourself when you go look for roles. When you look for roles, the way I, the way you stand out to me when I interview you, self-taught dev or not, is if you know what you're good at and you know the environment that you'll thrive in. Because most people don't ever talk about those things. They they try to answer the coding questions on the whiteboard and you know they grind uh, leak code or hacker rank, right? And then they're studying for system design which is great. You have to be competent. Competence is one of the things we evaluate as an interviewer. But knowing who you are and how you can extract that to other people, even when you submit an application, is super valuable. But the only way to find out if you're going to fit in those environments is to go talk to people. So as a self-taught dev, I would encourage people to go research companies that they think would be great places to work and then find people that are like second-level connections to them like on LinkedIn. So, you know, I don't know anyone, say, at Databricks, but at Databricks sounds cool. But maybe I know somebody who knows someone at Databricks. Can I ask for a warm intro? And then go talk to them about what it's like working there as an engineer and find out you can do this. It doesn't cost you anything, right? You don't, you don't have to pay for some fancy LinkedIn premium, whatever. You say, hey, I'm a self-taught dev and I think Databricks could be a pretty cool place to work. They could be current employees or they could be past employees. You know, if you talk to a past employee, they will not hold back about the bad things in addition to the good things. They don't work there anymore, right? So you can get a really honest opinion from them. And if you send out 10 LinkedIn connection requests to engineers related to Databricks, two or three of them are going to say yes. And if you really want to, you can buy them a Starbucks gift card for $10. Like that information is probably worth like 20 grand to you about a place you would love to work or a place you never want to work in your life, no matter how much money they pay you, that information is valuable. So networking, I think is really important to go find those roles. And then that's kind of like the top of your funnel, right? Find the opportunities. But then as you go through the process, it's really important. You know how to pass a recruiter phone screen, which is really easy to do. You just got to show them that you know more than they do. And then they get really embarrassed. You know, you don't be rude about it, but you ask them questions of increasing complexity about the job description requirements until they say, I don't know, you'll have to talk to the manager about that. And as long as you ask them more questions about the job than they ask you, you control the conversation and they will put you through like in seven minutes. They won't even finish the 30 minute conversation. 
because their job is just to figure out, do you know what you say you claim to know on your resume? And if you can show you know more than they do, they'll put you through. That's it. Anyone I've known that's used that process, 100% passing through to the recruiter phone screen, uh, unless there's a key requirement on that job description that you simply don't have. Wow, that that um, that last point that you made there, I think was gold. That's something that I've, I've never heard from anyone, especially when talking about recruiters. And um, you did mention networking, and we talk about networking a lot on here. And um, I already have some, we already have some thoughts on this, um, but I'd like to pick your brain a little bit. What do you think is a good approach for, let's say I wanted to to network with you, right? And I was, I wanted mm-hmm. to reach out with you. I, I get sometimes um, like messages from people like, hey, Matt, um, I need you to, can you get me a job? And I'm like, what? I, I, I can't even get myself a job right now. How am I supposed to? And I think that that might not be the best way to reach out and network with people. So what's your take on this? So that can happen where someone in the invite, they personalize in LinkedIn. And the first thing they talk about is what they need or what they want, right? Uh, or, or salespeople will do this too. We call this the pitch slap, you know, at, uh, in LinkedIn, right? You know, that they slap you across the face with this pitch and you're, you're saying this, I don't mind helping people, but when all you do is send me a thing and you're not even trying to ask me a few questions about myself or what I might care about, it is self-serving in a way that just doesn't seem like you want to connect. Like the connected, you know, connecting with you as a means towards landing a, a job, but saying I need help and I've looked at your content online, particularly this article or this LinkedIn post you made, and I'd like to ask you some follow-up questions about that article for my scenario. I am always accepting that LinkedIn connection request if you wrote that and personalized it. Always. Because if you look at my LinkedIn profile, it's very clear. Like I am fulfilled by helping other people succeed. That's what I love doing. So it's not hard to get someone for for someone to get me to accept their LinkedIn profile as long as it comes across as me getting to do something I like to do. So you have to understand people's currency, right? Not like, you know, like do they use dollars or British pounds, but what is it that fulfills them and they enjoy doing? You know, if you look at my LinkedIn profile, it's clear I like helping people succeed. If you send me a LinkedIn connection quest with like, I'm stuck with this career problem and I think you could really help me. Can we talk about it? Like I, I, I'm, I, I will just always say accept, always, because that's how I get fulfilled. I am fulfilled by helping other people be successful. So you have to do some homework, right? You need to go look at Matt on LinkedIn. Maybe you do a Google search on him or do some sort of link tree and analysis. Does he have a sub stack? Like, you know, is he posting on Medium? What does he write about? If I just read an article that resonated with me and you mention it by name, that's enough for me to want to connect with you because you found value in something I made. And I want to talk to you about what value you found in it, right? So it's just about connecting with people and trying to see the win-win, right? This is not win-lose. I think a, a lot of early engineers run into this challenge where you get into a, a meeting and you're considering these different options. And Matt, you believe option one is really important. And Eric, you believe option two is way better. And you guys go like Thunderdome style at each other. And I can't believe that you think this is right, Matt. Oh my gosh, like what's wrong with you? Like, you know, and Matt says, Eric, like you're going to wake up a year from now and realize I was right. You know, and it becomes this win-lose scenario 
most scenarios are not win-lose. You just need to put the problem on the other side, and Matt and Eric should be standing next to each other, seeing the problem as the enemy. Not like that your competing idea is my arch nemesis and I need to destroy it with my, you know, lasers on the top of my sharks or whatever. So the same thing is true for connecting with people. Find a way that you guys find something that you share and get what you want and are looking for by giving them something they want, right? That shows that you care enough to that uh, that you did some of that extra research. Ryan, you're giving us a lot to think about. I think you've given us a lot of good information, a lot of really helpful stuff for both Matt and I and for anybody that's going to be checking out this particular podcast. Um, I want to kind of give you a minute to just uh, anything else that you think would be relevant for folks getting into the industry, for the self-taught individuals, anything you want to kind of comment on that you think we haven't uh, mentioned at this point. You know, I wish I could say there was this, uh, I don't know, course you could take on Udemy or, or something that would teach you about the things you'll have to learn uh, when you work with nine other software developers, because that's uh, that's this pivot that you make from being a self-taught dev to working with a team. I haven't found one yet. Maybe that means I need to make one. I'm not <laughs> sure. Uh, I would encourage one, one thing I'm a huge fan of for people who are looking for good learning sites is educative.io. If you're not familiar with that website it is gorgeous. It's like the Craigslist version of teaching engineers uh, important technologies in the sense that there are no videos and the fact that they have no videos is lovely. Everything's written down. It's something like $300 for a whole year of access to their entire content. Like I've taken courses on there that are worth $300 all by themselves. So resources, I heartily suggest educative.io if you want to learn a new technology. In fact, I have a discount code if people are interested in using. Just use the discount code refactor. You'll get 10% off um, for annual subscription. So throw that out there. Secondly, just network with people and find out what it's like to work at these places you want to work at and lean into the things you don't know. Because as much as you know about coding, there's some process things, there's one-on-ones and career development plans and OKRs and promotions and writing feedback on other people. All of this stuff is going to be new. Don't shy away from it. Be open to this idea of accepting feedback and learning those skills now that you're in an environment that requires you do those things to be successful. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much, Brian, for um, all of this information. Um, I could tell you right now that this has been super useful for just me. I could only imagine how it will help our audience. So thank you for that. Where can people find you? Sure. So you can find me on LinkedIn, Brian Pulliam. Uh, my website is refactorcoaching.com. So if you're interested, I help with mainly three use cases, land a tech job, get promoted or get career clarity. Those are the three that I help with the most. And I specialize in helping engineers and PMs or someone who's leading engineers or PMs. Um, And my process has a lot to do with going through your strengths and your values to kind of figure out what are the companies you would want to work at that would be a natural fit for who you are and what you bring to the table. But if anyone's interested, they can book a free intro chat on that site. It's pretty easy to do. Awesome. And we'll link out to uh, your information in the show notes as well. I want to thank everyone for listening to Self-Taught Devs. If you can do us the kindness of leaving a rating and review on your podcast platform of choice, that would be extremely helpful for us. Uh, For Matt Ehrlich, my name is Eric Wigglesbeck, and thank you all for tuning in.